Hello there, welcome to the third episode of the HSK Student Pod. This is Richard, your host from the HSK ETEC team. Thank you for joining us on the third episode of the HSK Student Pod. It's a pleasure to have you as one of our listeners. I wish to thank you all our listeners for the positive feedback you've been giving regarding the HSK Student Pod. We encourage you to keep sending in any ideas you have got and to share the podcast with your friends to help build the HSK staff student community. As usual, definitely as usual, I have got special guests for you who are going to share wonderful messages with us and I hope you enjoy this episode. First, we have a message from Julie Vuro, our Associate Dean for Learning and Teaching and Student Experience. Julie is going to give us some general news and updates on what's going on in the school. I now hand over to Julie. Thank you so much, Richard, and hello to everybody and happy February to all of you. I'd like to start by giving a big shout out to all our student reps who do such a fantastic job of representing the student voice. We have almost 100 reps in the school and I know that you all work really hard in support of your fellow students and improving the student experience. Two of the projects that I focused on this year have both come directly from your feedback, one of which is about timetabling and the other is about accommodation. For the timetabling, I've been talking to colleagues around the school and in other schools and actually our timetabling central unit about the problems that students tell us they experience. First of all, when they have back-to-back sessions scheduled throughout the day with little or no break in between. And secondly, when there are sessions where there is a long gap in between, making it really difficult to make an effective use of your day. And so we're really hopeful that we can actually see some change with that over the next year's timetabling. And just to reassure you, you know, that is an issue that lots of students have talked to us about. And and behind the scenes, there's lots of work and discussions going on to see how we might address that. The other area that I've been focused on this year has been accommodation. And that's been raised by one of our students, Kaylee Malone, who's a paramedic student and also a school community organiser. And Kaylee has, from her own experience and experience of other paramedic students, raised the issue about the problems when you're sharing in your house uh, or your flat with people on other programmes from elsewhere in the university who don't really understand the placement experience and how difficult it can be when you're working long shifts, when you have to get up early or coming home really late um, and the rest of the house is perhaps in party mode when actually what you need to do is lie down and get some sleep. So, Kaylee, thank you to you for raising that. Um, it's certainly not just the paramedic students that have mentioned it. Uh, and now we're having discussions with the students' union and with our housing team and our residential assistants to see how we could better meet the needs of students on, uh, on placement when they're in their accommodation. And indeed, if there's a way for those students to request to be housed with other students in placement um, so that they're kind of with other students who have an understanding of their experience. The next uh, student open reps uh, meeting is on the 7th of March at one o'clock in F392. The dean will be there uh, to answer your questions. So please bring along your list of of questions uh, and I'll be there as well to take some notes. And if there's anything we can't answer or deal with at the time, then I'll take those away and and give you some feedback at a later date. So love to see you there. 7th of March, one o'clock F392. Um, also, we wanted to mention that at this time of year, we hear a lot of um, feedback from students about the difficulties of financial constraints. And, and probably at this time of year, in particular after Christmas and a January that's often full of bills, uh, it can really, I know, impact on, on how effectively you can learn 
when in fact what your, your primary worry is maybe around finance. So just wanted to remind you that there is a financial help sheet on the School Study Net site, which puts together various sources of advice and help and practical help uh, that are available through the university, including information about the Hardship Fund and HSK's own bridging loan. So please do have a look at that. I hope that's helpful for you. Finally, I wanted to mention that our Attainment and Inclusivity Group is going to invite students to lunch on February the 28th to uh, talk about the kind of things, again, not just finance, but all sorts of other things that might impact on your ability to learn effectively. So that might be barriers to learning, but it might also be things that enable you to learn more effectively. And if we can better understand that, then we as a group can also uh, uh, champion and campaign on your behalf to change or put in place things that will make it easier for you to learn. So that's our attainment and inclusivity group. It's a school group and we're really, really uh, hopeful that we can get some student members on it too so that we can work together in looking at those kinds of issues. And I will get an advert out about that onto Studying and Canvas fairly soon. So that's all for me uh, for February. Uh, I hope you have a great February and I look forward to uh, speaking to you again in March. Thank you and bye-bye everybody. Thanks, Julie, for sharing with us the important news and keeping us up to date on what's going on in the school. For this month's student success stories, we have our guest, Louis Navard, a third-year mental health nursing student. Louis is going to share some good news related to his elective experience at Broadmoor Hospital. I now hand over to Julie who had the opportunity of meeting and interviewing Lewis. Okay, thanks very much, Richard, for that introduction. And Lewis, welcome to you uh, here today. Thank you so much for coming in to share a bit about your elective experience uh, at Broadmoor. So what I want to do, I suppose what I really want to start with is why did you choose to go to Broadmoor? I think in the first instance, I chose Broadmoor purely just because I was interested in forensics. Um, I'm based in mental health. Um, and I just sort of thought, well, why not throw myself into the deep end rather than sort of stepping into it slowly, I thought, because the chance of getting a forensic placement at the university is quite slim. So I decided to just go all in and just go with something that I'd heard of in the past and, you know, something that a lot of people have heard of and there's a very sort of a big mask around it. So okay, around Broadmoor in particular. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, there's a lot of stereotypes and a lot of... Um, there's a lot of barriers to break down, I think, with people when it comes okay. to talking about Broadmoor. Yeah. So I thought I'd just so, so for students who may not be familiar with, when you say forensics and Broadmoor, you know, what, what kind of a setting is it then? So Broadmoor is known as a high-security psychiatric mental health facility. Um, obviously, a lot of people seem to think that it's a prison. Okay. It's not a prison. Um, it's for people who are in some sort of forensic trouble, I guess you could say. So in trouble with the police or in trouble with the law in some sense. Okay. Um, but due to their mental health, they're not held culpable okay. for that action. Um, so it could, it could be a variety of things. It could go from, you know, petty theft to murder. Um, so you get a big variety of individuals in, in the hospital itself. Um, but yeah, so... So that, that was the appeal then, a different setting and... And the kind of setting that you didn't, you wouldn't have been able to get just as part of a standard yeah. placement yeah. experience. Yeah. So that that makes it sound to me like it would be quite hard to get access to that then as a student. So how did you set it up? 
So originally I had no idea how to go about it. Um, but then it was brought up when I was talking to one of my mentors on another placement who had who previously worked there. Okay. Um, and I sort of said to him, I said, you know, do you have any contact details or anything like that? And he said, yeah, yeah, of course, I can put you in contact with the matron. And obviously for anyone who doesn't know, the matron is sort of the, the person that runs the whole thing. So okay. I got in contact with him. His name was Derek. I, um, I emailed him just saying what I wanted to do, how could I go about it? And he got back to me within about two weeks, I think, you know, because he's a very busy yeah. man. So I was a bit hesitant to begin with. I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to get yeah. a reply. Yeah. Um, but then in the end, I got one back and he sent me all these forms. Um, you sort of go through it and you state why you want to do it, what, what interests you, you know, what degree are you doing, all this kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, and then it goes from there and then email, I got an email back and it just sort of flowed from there. So Fantastic. So you, how long did you go there for? So I was there for a total of four weeks because that was what the university allowed for. Um, but I wish I could have done longer, I think. Okay. Okay, so t- t- tell us a bit more then about what it, what it was like when you tell me tell me a bit about your first day what it was it like arriving it was intimidating yeah. I think you know you you rock up to this big big wall yeah. that you have to walk through and then there's all this airport style security and your bag gets scanned and you get patted down and things like that and okay, so this is not like your average NHS popular no, ward then is no, it okay no, there's yes. no chance of anyone just walking in yeah um, and then obviously as a student you don't get your own set of keys so I wasn't able to go to the toilet without someone coming with me. Okay, nice. Um, but that's all the security thing, and apparently they had a, a previous incident with a student with keys where, you know, a door was left unlocked. And sure. So that was completely understandable, but for me it came as a bit of a shock, considering I've been on placements where they just they just hand you keys and say, yeah. you know, you can go wherever you want yeah. as long as you're careful. Um, so, yeah, getting around that barrier was quite difficult. And then on my first day, I was introduced to the team I'd be working with, I was on, you know, shown the ward that I would be working on, um, and it was interesting. I think most of my first day was just spent getting to know the patients. Yeah. And at first, I didn't want to know their history. I didn't want to know their reasons for being there. I didn't want to know anything like that. I wanted to get to know them. Yeah. So I spent my first day, even my first week, having my own, you know, understanding of who these people are and what they're about. So you didn't, you didn't want to be influenced by what you read, what somebody no. else told you. Just wanted to get to know the people there. Exactly. Yeah. And I thought, because if I if I just jumped in and started reading about the history, it might put me off particular people. Yeah. In the sense that you might feel a bit more intimidated when you're listening to them or when you're speaking to them, um, because that's quite common, I think, in forensic mental health settings. Mm. You know, you can be quite intimidated by. You know, I'm I'm quite a short person. I'm quite small, timid. I'm not I'm not a big burly bloke. Yeah. But a lot of these guys were. Yeah. And so for me to walk in there and say, you know, I'm looking after you, they sort of look at you and think, why is there a child looking after me? You know. Um, but I think it helped in the sense that I didn't go in there pretending like I knew everything. I went in there and just wanted to get to know them. So I think they responded quite well to that. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like even the first day sounds quite daunting and then yeah. as you say just some of the once you've broken down the initial setting. barriers yeah okay okay yeah. so so what did you so you go there for four weeks you know what what did you learn from it? what did you really enjoy about it or was there anything you you kind of wouldn't want to do again so I think for me it was quite it was more interesting than anything else you know mm-hmm. you, you cover a lot of topics that you wouldn't cover anywhere else um so things again like forensic mental health act assessments and things like that yeah um so all of the law for the UK in terms of sectioning 
Yeah, there's some there's some long section processes for these people, and, and you're seeing this in action, and so you're, you're, you're kind action. of getting up close to it. Yeah, so okay. it's something you know in in regular mental health settings, you'll see a lot of section two, section three, mm-hmm. which is sort of the the standard mental health um, holding terms. Yeah, um, but for forensic settings, it's completely different. You wouldn't see a section two, section three. It would be sort of section thirty seven, forty two. Okay. Um, and all these sort of sections, some of them will apply to their sentence terms, some of them won't. So you'd have some people there who are serving their prison time in the hospital, and you'll have some people who are only there to be treated, and then they'll serve their prison time, um, okay. all depending on what section they're So on. even the, um, you're not even talking about what, what the mental health presentation is, but even the law around yeah. it... The yeah. regulations and procedures sound really complicated and something you, yeah. you would not have got in another setting. No, yeah. no, 100%. Yeah. Um, but then you also, you get a first eye view of what it's like with people who almost don't have any hope. Because what you find in regular mental health settings is people think, oh, I'm here for a few months and then I can go once mm-hmm. I'm well. But these people genuinely don't have anywhere to go after this. They're going back to prison. So there were some people who were serving, you know, life sentences or even sort of 30, 40 year sentences. And so for them, the incentive to get better is very, very slim. Okay. And so you, you sort of, you become very good at communicating with people who have no sense of hope. And you sort of, you can motivate people in completely new ways that you'd never have sort of thought about before. Because obviously normally the incentive for someone to get well is to go home, to see their family, to have their freedom. These people don't have that. So it's how do you how do you work around that to make them want to get better and go back to prison, which is less less inhibiting than a psychiatric hospital. Right. So a lot a lot a very different way of working then, isn't mm. it? So you if you said communication, you had to change really the way you were thinking about because the of the nature of the, the, yeah. the people and the setting that you're working in. And is there is there for you or was there a standout learning experience? You know, one thing that you particularly felt that you learned from. I think for me there was no one particular thing. There was a lot of things. Um, I was only there for four weeks, you know, and, and to sort of get involved and pick up on everything that's going on and how the entire place works is is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, but because I was able to spend time on a lot of other wards as well, I spent time on their rehab wards. I spent time on their intensive care units, um, you know, and even even on their admission unit and high dependency units. So you get a huge variety of different ways in which they care for these people. And so to go from admission unit to intense security, you know, it's it's very very different. Mm. You know, you, you have patients in one unit walking around with their with their sort of genuine freedom throughout the day, but then you also go on another ward where they're in their room all day because they're too dangerous for themselves. And they're a high risk to others. So it's how do you approach those people? I think for me was the biggest thing that I took out of it was how do you approach someone who's in a serious situation that's chronic compared to someone who's acutely unwell? Mm. So I think the communication was a big thing for me and your approach was a big okay. thing. And it sounds like it sounds like it tested your skills as a student to the limit mm. uh, in terms of that flexibility of approach and needing to switch quickly sort of from one situation to another. Yeah. Um, do you I know you said before we came on air how much you know how much you got out of it and how much you'd like to have stayed longer. Clearly there was mm. a huge amount to learn. So is it an area that you would like to work in in the future? I would love to work abroad more. Um, obviously due to the, the expense of living around that area and things like that. I, I won't be able to work there when I qualify. 
Um, but that is that is the goal, I think, for me, is to go back there and work there again in that qualifiers. Okay. Okay, so well worth it then as a placement. 100%, yeah. That's excellent. Thank you so much, Lewis. That's absolutely, I'd, I'd like to talk to you for another half hour if possible, but I don't <laughs> think Richard's going to let us. So thank you for that, and thank you very much again for coming in. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks thank for you. having me. That's a fantastic message from Lewis and Julie. Lewis, thank you very much for coming to share with our listeners your amazing elective experience at Broadmoor Hospital. This is to all HSK student board listeners. We are always keen to hear first-hand accounts from HSK students about your work, your experiences, your challenges and successes. Please, do get in touch if you've got a message you would want to share with our listeners. I am pleased to have Valerie here today and she's going to talk about academic skills advice in the school. Thanks for inviting me, Richard. Hello, I'm Valerie, and I lead the Academic Skills Advice Service in the school. The other members of the team are Pat Wood, Helen Stamps, Angela Diamond, and Diane Curry. Diane Curry works specifically with nursing apprenticeship students, so if you're one of these students, please contact her directly for academic advice. As a team, we're basically here to help you improve your academic skills and your grades. So, how can you make the most of our services? First, there is the ASA website, which is the school's very own academic skills advice website. It's available from any browser at any time, and you don't need to access it via StudyNet. If you haven't explored it yet, please go and have a look. Uh, it's very easy to navigate and to find what you want. It has loads of resources to help you with your studies. For example, it has information on the school's referencing guidelines, as well as advice on academic integrity and how to avoid plagiarism. It has an assessment page, which will help you understand how to be successful in the assessment process. In the academic writing section, you'll find some samples of very good academic writing at all levels. And you also have video tutorials on analysis, critical analysis, evaluation and synthesis. For help with critical writing, there is the Critical Thinking Study Guide with its list of questions to generate critical thinking and writing. Uh, there is also a health numeracy page with some excellent video tutorials and post-tutorial quiz questions to help you with weight conversion, liquid conversion and tablet dosage calculation. The second thing we offer are workshops. So the workshops include embedded workshops and they are organized by your program leader or module leader and these are part of your timetable. We offer as well optional workshops on academic reading and writing. And you can find details about these workshops by clicking on the workshops icon on the ASA website. If you can't attend a workshop, please have a look at the handouts and there is likely to be something useful for you. For this semester, we're encouraging students to organize their own workshops as well. So if you and some of your friends find that you have similar issues with academic writing, 
you can send me an email so we can organize a workshop at a time that suits you and me. The third service we offer are one-to-one -one tutorials. They can be face-to-face -face or online if necessary. And details on how to access the service are on the ASA website. We offer academic skills advice, not subject-specific advice, which means that if you need advice on the content of an assignment, please go to the lecturers on the module team. So face-to-face -face tutorials can last up to 50 minutes. So what do we do in these tutorials? Well, we can help you with planning, structuring an assignment, we can help you with uh, the development of an academic argument, the development of paragraphs, uh, but the advice can also be on sentence construction, grammar, spelling. We can also help you making sense of your feedback. And very often we find that students come because they've been told their writing is too descriptive, for example, and they would like to bring in more criticality in their writing. We can definitely help you with that. So if you want a one-to-one, -one, we do recommend that you contact us early, that you plan ahead so that we can make the best use of the time available before your submission. Also, our services are fairly popular. It can be in high demand. So we are unlikely to be able to see you at very short notice. So please do plan ahead and contact us as early as possible if you feel you would like one-to-one -one advice. Finally, if you want help with literature searching skills, Angela Diamond can help you. She offers drop-ins in LF271 and she's there on Friday mornings and Monday afternoons. However, to be on the safe side, we recommend that you email Angela to arrange a time beforehand. So, just to remind you, please do have a look at the School Academic Skills website and make use of all the facilities there to help you in your studies. So, where is the Academic Skills Office? We are based in LF271, which is on the lower floor in the right building, and we look forward to seeing you there. Many thanks for listening, and on behalf of the whole ASA team, I want to wish you the very best of luck in your studies. Thank you. Thanks, Barry. I'm sure our listeners have appreciated your message and will make good use of this wonderful service. It has been a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Many thanks, Richard. It's been a real pleasure for me too. For this month's professional spotlight, we have Janet Meliotzi from the HSK Adult Nursing Team. I'm not sure if you have been in this situation, especially during the winter season. I cannot tell if I have got a cold or flu. Sometimes you either meet a family member, friend or colleague at work and you ask them how they are. How many times do they say, I'm not really fine, I've been down with this terrible cold. Alternatively, some tell you, I've been down with this annoying flow bug that is going around. To add to this confusion, when I'm buying some medication, it says on the packaging, it's for both cold and flow. I keep asking myself, are they the same thing? I also wonder whether there is a fix for these so-called winter bugs, or 
Are there any precautions one can take? This is why we are so lucky to have our special guest today who will be able to shed some light on this aspect. Janet is going to talk to us about influenza and some of the measures we can take to minimize illness. Hello Janet, it's nice to have you as one of our special guests on the HSK Student Pod. Hello Richard, I'm delighted to be here. I now hand you over to Janet. Well, hello everybody. So as Richard says, I'm, I'm going to talk about um, influenza and respiratory illness um, generally and, and, you know, what it is that we can do. It's probably quite timely to talk about it now because certainly within the UK and, and the rest of the Northern Hemisphere, um, our, we are in flu season, as it were, um, because it tends to run uh, from October to April. And, and most cases are occurring now. So around Christmas time to the end of February is when we see influenza peak. So it's a good time to pick Richard to actually ask me to come and speak. Well, thank you for coming. No, my pleasure. Um, so we know that, you know, we're quite fortunate in the UK. We have a good healthcare system. We have good preventative measures. But actually across the world globally, we know that influenza, um, you know, is killing hundreds and thousands of people. You know, the World Health Organization, for example, estimates that between 250 and 500,000 people will die each year as a result of influenza or a complication of influenza. Um, and certainly, you know, it's only just over 100 years ago since we had um, the worldwide epidemic that occurred in 1918, where between 40 and 50 million people uh, were killed by influenza. You know, it's hard to imagine those sorts of numbers. So, when we think about influenza, those of us that have been very unlucky to have actually experienced it will, will know that on previous occasions where we've had a cold or a cough and, and we think, you know, that we're dying and that we've got the flu, actually we haven't. Because I think once you've had influenza, you certainly remember that. And although the symptoms are very uh, similar to coughs and colds and respiratory type illnesses, the severity with which the, that illness uh, portrays itself is, is very much worse. You know, so it is more than a runny nose and, and possibly a cough. You feel systemically unwell um, and don't underestimate how severe that can feel and the, the illness that you feel and the lethargy and the weakness that you feel. Um, it's also important to note that other than the, the classic symptoms, certainly within children and within older groups, they may not present clinically in the same, you know, typical fashion of somebody who's got a respiratory tripe illness. So um, again, in children, you know, it may be hard to recognise. The children may present with things such as diarrhoea, um, abdominal pain, general nausea and vomiting uh, that you may not firstly think is connected somehow to a respiratory illness. So uh, need to be on the lookout for those in, in those vulnerable groups. I think it's important to say also that um, in relation to the flu, it's the complications that flu can lead to that often cause um, the illnesses and, and the morbidity and the death um, that is associated with influenza. And, and these can range from very serious conditions such as septic shock, uh, pneumonia, uh, meningitis, where you, inflammation of the brain, encephalitis, and, and these can occur in perfectly normal, healthy individuals. You know, uh, middle ear infections is another concern. And, and certainly those complications are much more severe um, in the vulnerable groups, such as the very young and the very old, and those with certain long-term conditions. 
Uh, particularly in pregnancy, that's an added complication, not only for the pregnant woman, but also for the unborn child, um, leading potentially to premature birth, low birth weight, or, or unfortunately even death. As I say, within the UK, we are, we are lucky compared to the rest of the world in the sense, on average, it's 600 people that will die from the complications of seasonal flu each year. But, you know, it's still 600 people too many. Um, so we need to do things about it. However, influenza and the virus that causes influenza is, is to be admired. It's a complicated virus. It's, it's clever. It changes. It changes over time. Um, and that's what makes its eradication so difficult um, in the sense that year on year, within a year, within 10, 11 months, this virus has mutated and changed so that any preventative measures that we have, for example, vaccines, uh, we have to constantly be playing catch up and, and adapting those vaccines to offer some protection to the communities. So in terms of the virus itself, um, there are three basic types of flu that we know of, A, B and C, and type A um, is the most dangerous and, and that's where most preventative measures are, are targeted. Um, and because we know that it's the one that causes the most serious disease and is the one that is responsible for worldwide pandemics. Uh, which thankfully up until now we haven't had one, but you know, you never know what's around the corner. So it's important that that work in relation to prevention carries on. So type A, which is the one I'm going to focus on because it is the most deadly, is also the most complex. Um, so within the influenza type A virus, um, there are proteins that help it to invade cells. Um, and these proteins known as H and N, um, of which there are 18 different types of H and 11 known types of N, can recombinate and come together and change and present and manifest in all sorts of combinations to the point where we now have 144 different types of influenza A. Uh, and these can then, to add to the, that complexity, complexity undergo what's known as antigenic drift and where you get genetic changes occurring that leads to more variety of each subtype. Um, and, and within that, you know, we've already seen, we saw back in 2009, that actually two different virus strains then combined their own genetic material to create a new substrain. And this um, you probably have heard of as swine flu. That's exactly how that resulted. And again, very clever. So the virus is, is very, um, well, I, I believe to be admired because it is clever in the sense that it, you know, it will do what it needs to do as an organism in order to survive. And it does that very effectively. But of course, that's bad news for us when we're the ones that are potentially at risk of influenza. So Janet, wow, that's really quite astonishing. It's quite a formidable bug. As our students are involved in healthcare provision, and maybe on placement at the moment, what is the impact of influenza on healthcare services across the UK? Yeah, it's, I mean, Richard, obviously the impact is huge. As we know, most um, healthcare facilities are probably stretched to the rafters, as it were, and admission rates are up um, across all sectors of healthcare delivery. And that puts a strain on, on services, puts a strain on the individuals working within those services, um, and, and, you know, can potentially make them ill as well. So we could land up with short staff, short supplies. Um, I, I, interestingly, I, I ju just this morning pulled off the Public Health England um, 
national influenza report because I really wanted to understand you know, what is the impact on healthcare? Uh, where are we? So it's quite an interesting report, folks. If you want to have a look, just go on to Public Health England. There's lots of interesting reports on there about bugs and not just influenza. So if you're researching or looking at um, a particular disease, do have a look at that website. As I say, it's Public Health England. So, but back to influenza. Um, so I, I looked across, well, what is the impact across all different types of sectors? Um, and so, for example, so these reports are for the last week. So certainly within the last seven days within the community, there have been 87 reported outbreaks of respiratory type illness, some of which are, it could be influenza. 49 of these were reported from care homes, which on further investigation showed that the illnesses had been caused predominantly by influenza type A, which we talked about previously. Um, there have been, again, remember folks, this is in the last seven days, 10 outbreaks in hospitals across England. Um, and again, 23 outbreaks in schools um, across England. And again, predominantly influenza type A. So that, that's the bad guy. Um, within the primary care sector, I found this quite interesting and quite surprising, actually, um, that in fact, uh, patients presenting to GPs with influenza or flu-like symptoms um, that actually it was a low level intensity uh, for GP consultations uh, to the point 17.5 per 100,000 uh, of registered people uh, who are registered with GP practices in England. However, I'm wondering if that's because most of those then went to hospital instead, because certainly hospitalisation rates for individuals with flu-like illnesses is up. So we've got a current rate of 6.11 per 100,000. Uh, for England alone, and that's an increase on previous figures. Uh, of course, alongside that, more people in hospital, actually more sicker people in hospital, uh, admissions to intensive care units and high, high dependency units, um, it's had a high impact there. Um, and again, the rates have risen to 0.56 of all 100,000 admissions are to these specialised areas. So again, that's really stretching a resource um, you know, to its limits. What's pleasing to note that is that certainly within the last seven days, however, nobody has died from an influenza type uh, illness or influenza itself within England. Other parts of the UK, there have been deaths reported. So in Scotland, for example, we, we do have mortality rates there. Um, just thinking about the bigger world then, um, obviously our part of the world, Europe, Northern Hemisphere, um, you know, influenza activity is, is increasing, as we would expect. Remember, I was saying that between now and April is our season. That tends to apply to all of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, interestingly enough, in Southern and Southeast Asia, equally, they, they, they show increased rates of influenza at the moment as well. Um, however, the tropical countries, as we expected, the Caribbean, the Central and South Americas, we've got very low levels of in influenza in those parts of the world. So, I think we all need to get on the jets and fly over there. Oh, definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Obviously, the impact of influenza is not only in the UK, but also worldwide. So what can we do to minimise or prevent influenza? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the impact is wide. And as we say, we're lucky in this country in the sense that, you know, our, our rates, are, the impact is not as huge as it is in other parts of the world. Um, but I, I firmly believe that, you know, that the... the the best preventative measure, you know, or the, the way of minimising our risk is vaccination. And for me, it's still the best and safest protection against influenza. So, you know, I can't stress it enough. 
Um, you know, the flu vaccine protects everybody, not just the individual. And, and you know, it is something that's got safer and has developed over the years. And certainly it is our main weapon in the armory against it. Um, so not only, as I say, does it present, protect you as the individual who is getting vaccinated, it, it also reduces the spread of disease to others um, and reduces the spread of the flu virus who, to other people who may be at risk of getting flu by creating what's known as a herd immunity within communities. And we know, you know, geographically that varies across England, you know, where, where uptake is good the incidence of influenza drops, you know, so, so there is a direct correlation. So, um, yeah, it is the best protection we have against the strains of flu that are expected to circulate. And certainly every year's flu vaccine is made and tailored to that. Um, however, you know, it's not perfect. You know, we still get reports of flu despite people being vaccinated. And that's really because decisions about what to include in the vaccine have to be made at least six months before the, f the flu season starts. So in our part of the world, within the Northern Hemisphere, um, that, that will start now in, in February in that the World Health Organization will now review the types of flu that had been circulating previously in all parts of the world and chooses the ones which will go into the vaccine for the following autumn. And this allows time for the vaccine to be made. But it also, if you think about it, because it's done so far in advance, it gives the flu virus time to change before vaccination starts in the autumn. However, having said that, in about nine or 10 years, the vaccine will eventually match the strain causing the illness that winter. But sometimes the, the flu virus changes in ways that are not expected. So that means year on year, the flu vaccine may not always be a good match for the strain of flu that is circulating. And that's why it's important that every year we still continue to have an, an immunisation. We know, however, you know, and I'm sure you've all met somebody who has said, you know, oh, well, it didn't work for me. I still got the flu or actually the vaccine made me ill. I'm not having it again. Um, the vaccine cannot give you the flu. I think it's important to know that because it is totally inactivated. So if, as long as you are well when you are given the vaccine, it will not make you sick and it will not give you the flu. Um, but we know that, you know, with people that are vaccinated, up to half that population, it will prevent any type of flu-like illness at all. At all. Um, but that this protection will vary amongst the age groups and across the different strains of the virus. And as I said earlier, I'm sure if we track back, we can see that, you know, actually the vaccine was more effective and more efficient some years than others. And there's lots of reasons, as I've explained, uh, why, why that might be. However, we do know um, that it does not work well the older you are. And so because of that, it's important that when we're thinking about the community and the herd immunity and the protection of all of us in and around the surrounding areas where we live, that the young and, the, and that those age groups where it is very effective are vaccinated. So that includes children um, and healthcare workers, because we're, we're very efficient at spreading it to older people through through our day-to-day -day work or through our day-to-day -day interaction with grandparents, with family members, with school and all the environments that we may 
um, well go into. Um, the, so within the UK, the government has, has recommended that for the over 65s, that a trivalent vaccine is given uh, because this is expected to work better in this age group. A trivalent vaccine is one that works against three different strains of the flu. In the six month to 64 year age group, the, the UK recommendation is, and this includes pregnant ladies as well, is that the quadrivalent vaccine is given. And this is the first year we're doing this. And this is effective against four different strains of the flu. Um, children over the age of two are offered a nasal flu vaccine rather than an injection. And the reason that it is given in a nasal form is that for this group, it seems to provide a better protection than an actual vaccination. Um, so in the younger age groups, it's given nasally, but obviously the older age groups, we, it's through inoculation. However, having said all that, it is very effective, as I said earlier, but vaccination uptake certainly within England uh, remains variable. With, with some sectors of the community um, uptaking better than others. So again, I've pulled this off Public Health England in the previous weeks, and what it's showing that uh, the 65 plus age group are, are those who are more likely to uptake the vaccine. 71.2% of that age group are uptaking the vaccine. Um, however, in the under 65s and in pregnant ladies, the uptake is less than 47% in these age groups. And in children, um, the two to three year olds, the younger end of childhood, 44% uptake in that group, slightly better in school age children between 55 and 62%. So there is still work to be done there. Janet, you have told us very clearly why we should have the vaccine. So why are uptake figures for the vaccine for some groups less than 50%? That's a very good question, Richard. Um, you know, certainly there is uh, massive public health campaigns that sort of start, you know, the minute we're back from our summer holidays, really, you know, end of September, beginning of October, encouraging us to go and, you know, bin it, sneeze, bin it, cover it, do what have you. Um, and yet uptake still remains, as we've seen in some populations, less than 50%. So there's 50% of people out there who, you know, potentially could carry the flu, give it to other people, get very sick themselves with the flu, um, who are not uptaking what is a very safe vaccine. So uh, again, I think it's, it's, it's not just the flu vaccine, it's uptake of any type of um, healthcare intervention. You know, there, there's a there's a mixed psychology as to why that might happen. There is fear with vaccine. You know, certainly the MMR vaccine scares has not only uh, reduced the impact on the, the uptake of vaccination for those particular diseases, but I think in some sectors of the population um, there is that fear about any vaccination now. So so again, choose not to have it or choose not to allow their children to have it for those very reasons. So we need big campaigns to try and overcome that. I think also that within our populations, there will always and there are very hard to reach groups uh, for one reason or another, socially constructed uh, or otherwise, that means that they are not able to access or are reluctant to come forward for healthcare for fear of whatever reason. So, so the reasons are very, are very complex. Um, Certainly, I know within healthcare, you know, big foundation trusts do huge campaigns, not only for their staff, for visitors, for patients, for anybody within healthcare institutions, 
GPs are the same. Uh, schools are, are very good at actually publicising and encouraging parents to get their children vaccinated. Um, I think we have to keep going with this very good work, but I think we also need the statistics to look at, you know, what groups are not uptaking and what is it that we can target specifically for them that will allow them access to vaccination. Janet, other than vaccination, what else can we do to prevent the spread of not only flu, but other respiratory illnesses? Good question. There's lots we can do, Richard. Um, So as we know, flu, in the same way as any other respiratory um, illness, is passed on through coughing and sneezing. Um, And you can become infected by either breathing in those airborne droplets or by touching surfaces where those droplets may have landed. Um, And we know, for example, with influenza, with the flu virus, it can live for around 24 hours on things such as, you know, common objects that we use on a day-to-day basis, such as um, keyboards, handrails, door handles, etc. I think what adds to the complexity as well is that, you know, you you may be carrying the virus and not actually show any symptoms um, and may not show symptoms for, you know, a day. And just think about how many people you may come, come into contact. Um, across that day where you don't even know that you are infectious or about to go down with an illness. Um, And so that means that you can actually pass that on unknowingly. Uh, Certainly children as well, much as we love them, they can remain infectious for up to two weeks. So that's an even longer period where they can potentially uh, pass that on to another individual. So other than vaccination, which to me is the gold weapon, if you like, um, I think other things that we can do um, it's, it's, it's basic. It's very straightforward. So uh, avoid or limit your contact with people that are sick. <laughs> so, you know, which I know is easier said than done sometimes. Uh, you don't realise that they, they, they are sick until you're in fairly close contact. Uh, equally, I would say that if you are sick, stay away from everybody else, which I know certainly, you know, I'm a healthcare professional too. That's difficult. We, we like to be needed. We think we're needed. We think everything's going to stop if we're not there. But actually turning up at work with a respiratory illness is never a good idea because you can bet your life you're off sick today. Uh, there'll be five others off sick tomorrow. Thank you. So, so keep your bugs to yourself. You need to not have a fever for at least 24 hours before you do go back to work. And that's 24 hours Uh, fever-free without the use of an antipyrogenic, so without the use of, say, paracetamol or some other drug that would lower your temperature anyway. So this is without those drugs, okay? If you are coughing and sneezing, important that you cover your mouth and nose, so you're covering that that potential spread of the droplets, as I was saying earlier. Um, and, And where possible, you should be using disposable tissue, so you use it once, you throw it away. Um, gone are the days of the cotton handkerchief, okay? We, we get rid of them, we get a clean one if we need to use another one. Once you've got rid of that tissue, please, please, please wash your hands with soap and water uh, where possible. I know that's not always possible, but that is what we should be doing at the earliest opportunity using soap and water. I realise, you know, there's this big public health campaign, there are alcohol gels and rubs and all sorts of sanitizers, you know, everywhere and anywhere. Um, and certainly they're better than not doing anything, but they are not a substitute for washing your hands with soap and water. They don't prevent the flu and they don't sterilize your hands. Uh, and certainly, um, I know you can probably buy these gels very cheaply now in supermarkets, but anything that's got a less than a 60% concentration of alcohol 
is not effective anyway, so you really are wasting your money. But what they can do is help to reduce the level of contamination on the skin. But, big but here, your hands have got to be physically clean. So, if you blow your nose into your hands because you don't get to the tissue in time, and then rub them with alcohol gel, you are doing absolutely nothing because the alcohol gel becomes denatured when in contact with organic soil. So unless your hands are physically clean, these gels are not going to work anyway. So soap and water is the way forward. Equally, we know because the droplets can live for 24 hours on common objects, surfaces that we use, it's important that on a daily basis, all those surfaces are kept clean. Uh, so good cleaning of the environment as well as your hands will hopefully minimise your risk. But remember, folks, the main intervention that has the most impact for influenza is the vaccination. So I cannot stress it enough. You know, get vaccinated every year. Uh, make it part of your routine health. So to summarise, really, and Richard, in response to something that you said right at the start, this confusion about colds and flu. A cold, folks, is self-limiting. It's, it's miserable. We know that. You feel rough for a few days, but actually it, you will get over it and you will get better. Influenza, or the flu as we may know it, is thankfully still rare in our part of the world, but is much more serious in its manifestations and symptoms. And actually, in vulnerable populations can lead to all sorts of serious illnesses and hospitalization. So please, Get vaccinated every year to keep us all safe. I can't stress that enough. And then we'll all stay well, hopefully throughout the winter months. Janet, any final message you can give to our HSK students in terms of their expectations and their responsibilities? Yes, absolutely, Richard. So what I would say to all of you is you are the workforce of tomorrow. Keep well, invest in yourself, eat well, rest, try and find positive ways to manage stress. I know you're all juggling at the moment with studies, with placements, you know, quite busy working as well to be able to support yourselves. You need to look after yourselves. So you need to take time and invest in yourselves and stay well. Equally, stay away if you are sick. Um, don't feel that you have to carry on because actually you're going to make lots of other people sick. And then that means the areas become short staffed, people get stressed sickness rate increases so it's hard as it is stay away if you're sick okay until you're better and fever free for 24 hours and wash your hands with soap and water wow wow janet thank you so much for the wonderful and useful information you have shared with us today i'm sure our listeners are going to take all these wonderful tips and points you've raised on influenza i myself have really really benefited and i'm going to pass this wonderful message to friends and family. It's really always a pleasure to have you on the HSK Student Pod. Thank you, Richard. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Janet. Now, before we come to the end of this podcast, let me remind you of the support there is for you here in the school and in the wider university. We know that HSK students are unique. You always study hard work hard and are constantly helping or supporting those around you. Our job is to help you make the most of the brilliant education and social and life experience that is available to you here in the university. I do encourage you to make the most of the resources and support you are being offered. On that note, 
I really encourage you to go and make use of the wonderful resource called the ASS site. This is a brilliant site that will help you to develop academic study skills and it includes resources tailored specifically for health and social work professionals. This is a site that will help you make that positive step in getting good grades in your assignments. Your module sites should have a link to the ASS site or you can go straight to this site by typing in the following web address. The address is http colon forward slash academic dash skills dot health dot hearts dot dot uk. I'm going to repeat the web address for the ASS site is http colon forward slash academic dash skills dot health dot hearts dot sc dot uk don't forget to sign up to the hsk student podcast so that you can receive new episodes automatically this can be done by downloading and installing the soundcloud app which is a free app that will give you easy access to the podcast episodes those who have got itunes can also access uh, the podcast through the iTunes download list. I also encourage you to remind five friends of yours to listen to this episode. By doing this, you are doing your part to help build the HSK staff student community. I know there are many of you going to placements or serum placements. I wish you good luck on your placements. Good luck in your current or future assignments. Lastly, I just need to say, Look after yourselves, keep warm, and I hope everything you do in February goes well for you. Bye-bye from Richard, your host, and join us in our next HSK Student Pod, which will have something fresh and new to listen to.